Hello, I am Curtis Mansfield and this is Hips and Dips. This week I am joined by respected physiotherapist and business owner Joni Goss. Joni is a graduate of the University of Hertfordshire with a sports therapy degree and later graduated with a first class honours in physiotherapy from King's College London. And therefore, I feel she is pretty well positioned to comment on injuries in sport. Her extensive experience has given her wide grounding in sport, with roles at Wasp Rugby, the University of South Florida American football team, Ealing Trailfinders, and has her clinical placements in respiratory and orthopaedics, amongst others, and now runs her own successful company, On Your Game. Through social media, Joni is able to share her views on all aspects of injury treatment as well as prevention and also her views on the fitness industry as a whole and therefore I'm hoping she can provide some really interesting conversation on a whole host of subjects. I'm on my way to join Joni now at her practice for a review of my hip and then I'm hoping we can sit down and have this loose chat about sports injury and sports as a whole. So I'm now going to hand over to the lady herself, Joni Goss. Okay, uh, Joni, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> um, so I just finished my appointment with Joni, which means two of my guests have now given me leg massages, uh, but we won't dwell on Dom's episode too much. Um, I was thinking earlier on, it's very rare actually you use someone's first name to their face. You nearly always say hello or how's it going, you're right. You very rarely say like, hello, Steve, how are you? Um, and I've actually said Joni's name wrong for about a year now. Uh, I've always called you Joanny, uh, which I'm still thinking actually is a Raven name. Uh, so my first question is, have you considered changing it? I haven't considered changing my name, but I do get a lot of um, queries about my name. I did on my first physio exam, I had my um, lecturer say to me, oh, you know, you can't have um, your sort of like preferred name on your badge for university. You have to have your proper name. Look, this is my proper name. But no, your proper name, you know, the one that's on your birth certificate, this is on my birth certificate. <laughs> what's the um, what's the derivation, I suppose, to that name? Where did that come from? So my nan was called Joan, and sadly she passed away when my dad was um, sort of in his early 20s, and they wanted to incorporate my name into, his, into her name. Um, so that's why they added the IE Joni to make it a bit more modern and a bit less granny-like. Oh, that's a, that's a nice story anyway. <laughs> right. uh, so every week so far we've started by having this conversation to check how the guests are in terms of their COVID experience and how it's affected their mental health, physical health and sort of social health, so the three elements of health. Um, however, this week you're a slightly unique guest because you've had a pers- different perspective um, you've had your personal point of view, your professional slash business perspective, and also the perspective from your patients. So to start off with, if we talk about your personal point of view, how have you found the COVID year so far? Yeah, I think it was tricky initially because I had to stop my business from being face-to-face. I had to move virtually and that's not something I'd really done loads of, so that was quite stressful. I was working in a professional rugby club at the time and I had to move all of that virtual and that's very very hands-on normally um but yeah sort of 
got through. I didn't like not being able to train in the gym. I think to start with that did affect me mentally and definitely physically because I started to look like a potato. Um, but mentally, I think I need to train every day or you know sort of five six times a week. So it just makes me feel good. And although I was training at home, it's not the same as the stuff that you can do in the gym. So I struggled with that but then I bought a barbell and I was fine since then it's been okay really I've been I think I've been quite lucky I've got good family we were at home just having a laugh together so we were able to make kind of the most of actually spending time together great yeah no I definitely should have bought a barbell I've stuck to the uh, resistance bands it's not yeah I couldn't have done that it's not the same (laughs) resistance band right um and then from professional slash business perspective yeah, so I think initially where I was going virtually, um, I did struggle with, with that a bit, just so it was quite a big change. But actually where I ended up having loads more time, I was unable to put loads of time into the social media aspects of my business that I had been neglecting. Um, and as a result of that, I've ended up being quite a bit busier. So now I've opened up and I am face-to-face, which is really good. Um, and it's interesting seeing lots of different patients and it. I have been seeing different injuries, I think, as a result of that as well. Okay, and then um, finally from that sort of patient perspective and perhaps how the foot the foot flow has changed for you, so sort of the sort of patients you're seeing, yeah. how has that changed? So I'd say I'm seeing a lot of people that are doing nothing actually, sort of just sitting at their desk all day and that seems to be just as bad as those that are doing lots and lots. So I've been seeing a lot of people with sort of neck and shoulder and, and hip pain there previously they would have had their commute they might have had stairs in their office and they were just moving more and now they're not so I see a lot of that and um, I've also seen a lot of tendinopathies this year I would say more so than any other year percentage wise and for me that's mainly because people have been running more they've been um, going back to the gym and doing maybe nothing over lockdown or a little bit Mm. over lockdown then returning to their gym activities as they were pre-lockdown and with tendinopathies any kind of big change that you have whether that be sort of volume intensity or load can lead to a tendinopathy so that's why I think we've seen so many of them this year yeah it must be very rare that people have had three months of nothing yeah and then so many people you see think they're just as strong or just as fast or just as good as they were before yeah definitely so I remember our first weekend back at the gym and there's people throwing around like 200 kilogram barbells who probably haven't lifted anything in months. Yeah. Um, that's, that's definitely going to go wrong and I'm, I'm not an expert. Um, okay, so then, so why physiotherapy for you? Yeah, it's, that's um, a strange one actually. I was going to do law up until I got to year 12 and then I went to Oxford University for an open day and decided that I hated it. Um, I just felt like I didn't really fit in I didn't really want to be doing that and I had to have a big sort of analysis session I was like right what do I want to do with my life <laughs> I actually spoke to someone at netball and she said well have you you, know, you really love sport have you thought about doing sports therapy um because I hadn't initially at the time sort of done the right things at a level to then do physio and I was like actually I'd rather work with sports people anyway so let's let's do that and mm. I had a look into it realized I still wasn't doing the right a levels so I had to pick up an extra A-level in my final year. I had to teach it to myself and the AS level and do my other A-levels. Um, and I didn't have the best sort of home environment at the time. My parents just split up. They weren't getting on too well. We were all under the same roof. So my school said to me, you know, we're happy for you to enter you for this other exam, but, you're, um, but we'd rather you stay on an extra year and you have three years at sixth form, which I, I just refused to do because I felt like I had to kind of leave home. It was time. Yeah. Um, so I said to them, I'll pay you back the interest fee for the exam if I don't pass and get into uni this year. So they agreed with me to do that. I had a very helpful PE teacher 
um, as well, who like was just very, very supportive of anything I wanted to do. Um, so she was really, really handy to have on board as well. And then from there, I did really well. My A levels, luckily, and was able to get into University of Hertfordshire. So um, to do sports therapy, and from there, then did physio. And I actually only chose to do physio from the experiences I've had whilst I was doing sports therapy that indicated to me maybe maybe I should be doing physiotherapy as well. Okay, so for people who don't know, what's the difference between physio and sports therapy? Yeah, so sports therapy is all what we would call musculoskeletal based. That's looking at sort of muscles, bones, joints, tendons, ligaments. Um, injuries and it's mainly looking at them from a sporting perspective we don't tend to look at sort of your 70 year old that's had a knee replacement that wants to be able to get back to walking again we tend to look at more you know the, the sports side of things amateur or professional whereas with physio it's a bit like you finish kind of jack of all trades and master of none um, which is good because it means you get a really good broad experience so you'll do a lot of respiratory yeah. you'll do neuro you might do women's health you might do pediatrics it just depends on what experience you've had um, as well as the musculoskeletal side of things and then from there you generally specialise so it takes um, you sort of have longer once you finish once you do your rotations in the NHS if you decide to go down that route to then decide what you want to go into after that yeah I think people often don't realise how many physios involved in the NHS I don't yeah. know what the statistics are but when I'm on a ward like the ward today there must have been five, six physios just on that one ward alone um, and you look at respiratory um, orthopaedic surgery, um, paediatrics, assisted fibrosis, etc. Even in COVID wars at the moment, it's physio is almost like the most represented yeah. job, which is uh, probably, you wouldn't necessarily expect that, I don't think. You didn't yeah, know. I think, well, at the moment, physiotherapists are the only people asking COVID patients to cough at them because that's part of their job. <laughs> so I'm quite glad I'm not in the NHS at the moment. Yeah, and they're, they're telling them to lie like on their front. Yeah. It's quite, if you walk into the hospital ward and every patient's lying, like planking facing down, yeah. it's quite a strange, strange sight. Okay, um, so before we get into the real meat of this chat, um, I'm quite intrigued to hear sort of your path from becoming a sports therapist slash physio to where you are now. So as you've had multiple placements, you've had um, sort of multiple opportunities to develop your skills before you started your own business or alongside your own business. So just summarise those sort of key steps along the way. Yeah. So I had um, two years at University of Hertfordshire and then you go off on a sandwich year, which you can either do study abroad or you can just pick um, a team to work with. And they've got a lot of links with a lot of teams across the UK and across the world, really, that you can choose to go with. Um, you don't have to. You can go straight on to your, your final year, but it just seemed logical that I had a year actually in industry and built connections and obviously just built more knowledge before I went back to uni. Yeah. So I went to Wasps Rugby Club. Um, which was amazing and that was whilst they were still down in London it was the year they moved up to the Rico mm-hmm. Arena um, and that was an absolutely incredible experience like invaluable I, I met so many great people that I'm still sort of connected with now physiotherapy wise um, and just learned tons and tons and then from there I went straight to America and did um, sort of half a season just over half a season in an American football team in University of South Florida so that was really good fun and at least and I could kind of see the differences and again learnt lots and it was a bit different but um, it was really good and then I came back for my final year of university and we did a bit of stuff in our, our university clinic um, and a few local rugby teams as well and I did a couple of days at Saracens Rugby Club mm-hmm. um, and then after that I did my physiotherapy degree so just before I started my physiotherapy degree that was starting in September 
in the July I started my business because I needed a way to make money whilst studying but not being kind of tied down to other people's time schedules <laughs> basically because you, I didn't know what my um, lecture schedule was going to be I knew I'd have placements and it would be stressful so started my business then more out of convenience of like I need to make money <laughs> I need to I still want to be practicing my skills I don't want to be working for someone else at this time so started that at the same time and did my physiotherapy degree where we have six different placements yeah. um so i started on a musculoskeletal outpatients which for me was something that i was obviously really familiar with so that was quite a nice one to start with um and then i went on to do a respiratory placement at st thomas's and then another sort of respiratory but also kind of abdominal um placement at princess royal hospital and then following on from that i did an elective orthopedics one at orpington which I really, really loved personally. Again, it's a bit more musculoskeletal based and you're working with patients that are well because they've got to be fit enough to have a knee or a hip replacement and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then I did Ealing Trail Finders, which I then later got a job at as well. So I did that as a placement. And then after that, I did my last one in neurology, which was mainly a stroke ward at St. Thomas's Hospital. So with, um, with WASP, was that the WASP first team? It was, yeah. So that'd have been like or Elliot Daly, yeah. James Haskell, that generation. Yeah, Joe Launchbury, um, Tom Vardell, Christian Wade. They were all the ones that were playing at that time. And that was up um, was it Adams Park they were playing at the time? Yeah, so we were, uh, yeah, High Wickham. <laughs> okay. Actually, if anyone listened to last week's episode, that was an interesting comparison because Ealing is um, a very good, quite wealthy, but still a championship side. Obviously, Wasps, um, although at the time they had their financial problems, they're obviously a top division premiership side. Um, did you notice a big difference in the off-field care between the championship and the premiership? Well, they're both professional leagues, but as we discussed last week, there's a massive difference in finances between the two divisions. Yeah, I think um, it's obviously different now because I'm comparing them pretty much five years apart, five seasons apart. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know how Ealing would have been at the time. So I can only compare now to, to 2019, 2020 with what was kind of 2014, 15. Um, I feel like physiotherapy wise, we had more, we had more bodies working with a similar amount of players. So obviously everyone got just a bit more attention and it meant that people could come in a little bit more and get a bit more um, soft tissue if they needed and that kind of thing at Wasps. But also I think the culture was a little different when it came to medical things. So when I worked at WASPs, one of the physios there was Terry Evans, who's an absolutely amazing physio and he used to be a professional footballer and he played at Brentford. He then actually went over to Ealing, so I knew him when I was at Ealing. So the care was managed similarly because he'd obviously been exposed to both. Um, but I'd say money-wise, what you do notice is that everyone is on the private kind of healthcare system with the with, with wasps and with Ealing. It's a bit more, you know, maybe we can do this through the NHS and this, but we through private. So it's a little bit... Um, so wasps is like knee problem, surgery next week, yeah. whereas Ealing has a lot more... Yeah, a lot. if you need it, it will get yeah. done straight away. Yeah, if they think it can sort of wait, or maybe it's sort of a medical issue that's not necessarily going to affect your rugby, then maybe they'll go through the NHS instead. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, on a complete side note, I was learning the other day that if you play international rugby in particular, they have this interesting, um, I forget what the term is, but like an extended period after you finish your career where they'll look after you like, yeah. for free. So quite a lot of players get like nose jobs or... Um, <laughs> any sort of minor cosmetic procedure they need done on the 
on the RFU and stuff, which is quite yeah. interesting. Um, okay, uh, so I think two places that really stood out for me were obviously were Wasps, a rugby club in England, and you mentioned uh, the University of South Florida. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so we've got Wasps, UK-based, University of South Florida, obviously American-based, uh, American football and rugby, which is obviously a really common comparison. People are always making that link on any sort of yeah. contact sport to a link together. So I'm quite intrigued to find out, did you find there was a big difference between how injuries were approached either side of the Atlantic? Yeah, I think there, there really was actually, it really stood out for me at the time. So I had a year of being at Wasps and I felt like um, my experience there was really, really positive, really good. Everyone I worked with was very good at their jobs from sort of S&C up to physio. And sometimes you're always going to butt heads with, with people in other departments, but ultimately everyone had a lot of knowledge. Um, what I felt like when I went to American football in America was they, it was kind of a case of having all the gear and no idea. Like they had... Yeah everything under the sun you could think of we had an underwater treadmill and I could like change the speed I could have cameras all the way around it I could get someone an x-ray immediately in like the room next door um get someone an MRI down the road like it was a case of just having everything like huge gym with every piece of equipment imaginable but I just couldn't understand the way things were being worked so it's like S&C and physio were completely separate departments and I don't think that's how it should work in a, in a proper club. You should be very much integrated because mm. you know, they, you need to see what they're doing so we know what we're going to do that week. And when you're trying to integrate players back, you need to be working with them. But it was run very separately. So actually a lot of the injuries we saw there were as a result, direct result of S&C. And your strength and conditioning coaches should not be injuring your players. They should no. be looking after them. <laughs> um, but what I, that's what I found a lot of. The other thing I saw a lot of was... Um, punishment for getting injured which I wouldn't say I agree with so we had one guy for example he'd ruptured his ACL one day the next day he'd been put in a um, in a brace but was asked to walk around holding this sort of like gazebo tent thing up walking around the pitches as like a punishment for getting injured um, mm. I was like he's actually injured because he's come here and we've, we're training him too hard and now his body's kind of said, said stop because a lot of them come from high school and they come straight into the professional or what is basically a professional setup at a university and they've maybe been training with football sort of one two evenings a week pretty casually and then they're coming into initially we have camp and camp starts um so like 4am 5am starts and it finishes about 11 12 o'clock at night so we're already not letting them sleep they are getting adequately fed um but then they'll be training in the morning which will be in the gym and they'll be outside in the field then they'll be back on the field later on they might have another gym session so they're just basically too overloaded too quickly um yeah. and particularly when you think these kids are like 18 like they are like they're not old <laughs> they're not well trained a lot of them their training age in the gym will be zero and then suddenly snc will be getting them to do things like max power cleans and then people come in with back injuries they come in with wrist injuries from hyperextension. so it, it was a really interesting difference and i found it very frustrating working in an american football environment um in some ways because I just felt like they had everything available to them but still managed to not sort people out yeah it's um I mean I've seen all the films <laughs> all the documentaries uh and I mean the general philosophy when it comes to a lot of American football clubs and to be fair rugby clubs as well is you want to break players um obviously ideally not physically but mentally you want to break them down and then hopefully rebuild them up as a team 
that seems to be quite constant. So you look at like, the sort of workloads they're doing and the the training sessions. It's not really about how can we make these players stronger or fitter. It's often about how can we push them to the limits so we can see what they're made of, if you like. Yeah. Um, which from a healthcare and medical physio point of view is probably the worst thing you could do really trying to overload players just to break them down but so I'm intrigued to see because I think both sports have had labelled at them the idea of overtraining you look in particularly in rugby you've got Leicester who have had a history of completely destroying players physically with like continuous scrums etc but you're still saying from your experience America was a lot worse yeah from my experience America was a lot worse I think rugby has got a lot smarter for the most part and I can't speak for Leicester I can only speak for the teams I've worked for but I think we're much smarter now with the way we train them and just having things like GPS trackers on um, people someone asked me the other day well why do we need to bother to see how fast someone's run well if someone's had a really hard game maybe for example your scrum half or nine has um, played the whole game and they've run 9-10k which in sort of professional matches does happen and normally maybe they do 5 or 6 it's just that this match for whatever reason they've been running loads and then by Tuesday they're saying to you oh my, my calf is quite sore and then you can look back on the data and be like oh it's because you've actually done loads more and so what we're trying to do with those players now is pull them early from sessions and that kind of thing but like nope you've run too much this week and just, and just pull them out because otherwise we don't yeah. want them to flare up with something whereas in American football they'd just be like well you can just crack on you just crack on until until they break um, with the clubs that I've worked with hmm. okay um, so obviously both sports have concerns over head injuries because they're basically a similar sport in terms of injury rates when it comes to sort of heads um, obviously the Will Smith film Concussion a few years ago brought quite a lot of attention to the issues America are having and the NFL in particular with recurrent head injuries and dementia and sort of problems that leads to rugby itself's had a few inquests in recent years regarding the number of injuries with heads um, and they brought in the concussion protocols in England between obviously there was a there was a time between sort of Ealing and Wasps and uh, the, a coach in America. Have you found there's a difference in how head injuries approach between a between Wasps and Ealing and also between America and the UK? Yeah, I think so. So, um, so with regards to Wasps and Ealing, it's more that our exams are examinations are now more comprehensive than they were before and that's not to do with sort of wasps being bad it's just that we now have a very standardized formula that we do um and that's all kind of come into place now and we can take players off and we can assess them and everyone is baseline so if you're i think 19 from the um before the start of the season you're eligible to do a baseline test so yeah. if you've already done your baseline test then as soon as you you have a concussion or a suspected concussion on the pitch we can pull you off the doctor generally will do that examination and decide are they concussed are they not um and then we can either send them back out or we don't um and then after that we've we've got a number of like rules that we follow and uh, certainly at ealing that's my most recent experience we were very very regimented with that and we followed it to the letter we didn't push anyone back sooner and, and in fact like your turnaround time is six days is your minimum turnaround time if someone's not having any symptoms after a head concussion after a head injury but um actually at Ealing we try to double up so that we try and do uh, like the first day we'd actually take that for two days and then take the second day for another two days so we wouldn't send them back after six days we send them back after two weeks just to make sure that they were they were good to go um rather yeah. than sending otherwise what we you do see sometimes is 
someone pierced behind that week, send them back into a game and they get a slight knock and then they're concussed and it's because they're just not quite recovered although they weren't showing proper symptoms. So I think that is managed very well and I think we're better at it now than when I was at WASP just because we've got more in place um, to do it. And at the time at WASP we were doing everything that we, we were told to do and now it's just, you know, we've got more things. And now also with professional rugby, if someone's had a certain amount of concussions that year, we do send them for a specialist um, assessment as well as someone really? that just looks at that. So there's a clinic in, I believe it's Birmingham, um, and I think there is one in London as well, that will look over players. Generally, if they've had three that season, and then what they do is give them stand-down periods. They'll say, okay, based on what we've seen, you're going to have to have a stand-down for three months, for example. And that will, they'll look at things like the video recording. So we have drones at, um, in training, we have cameras at training and cameras at games. And they'll look at all of that footage. If someone has had, for example, three concussions and all of which have come from big blows to the head because someone's come in with a knee and they've, they've smashed them about or something like that. Um, and they've recovered quite quickly from them. Their stand down's likely to be short because they've had a high impact injury, but they've recovered quickly. If yeah. you're looking at a video and someone's had a really kind of innocuous hit, like you're not even sure if they've been hit in the head, it kind of is that small, and then it's taken them weeks or months to recover, that's a good indication that they need to be having a stand-down period, and stand-down would mean they're allowed to do gym training. Sometimes they can do non-contact pitch training too, it depends what, what they kind of set out for them, but they're not doing anything contact-based for that period of time. Hmm. Yeah, I, um, I had a few head injuries when I was back playing in Bath, mm. and I found, well, I mean... Bath themselves didn't do this, but I know there was one of my rumours that other clubs were teaching players to um, cheat the exam, basically, you know, the yeah. initial assessment. Yeah. So we were given, we didn't use them, but we were given a list of all the words that could come up. Yeah. And we were told to, like, learn the list. So, in theory, you're more like, I mean, at the time, you had to learn, like, was it like 10 words? We were told 10 words, and you had yeah. to repeat them back, like, a minute later. Five words, yeah. So it was so we were told like know all these words off the heart and then it'd be easier to call them mm. so you've got more chance of passing than and we were told to like practice walking the straight line it sounds yeah. stupid but you you're better at it then you've got yeah. less chance of failing it's bad isn't um, it which obviously is terrible yeah and I'm, I don't know if the tests have become any harder recently or yeah. more elusive to cheat but um, but okay that's, yeah, that is interesting um, so I suppose with that that problem of head injuries and general injuries as well have you found any times where you've had sort of ethical dilemmas as a physio, so you've had coaches, obviously you have the team's interests at heart, so they want to win the game, they want their best players on the pitch. From a healthcare point of view, you're thinking player A is at massive risk of a further injury or another head injury. Have you found yourself having to make those decisions where you're your authority is being questioned by a coach? Is that quite a common occurrence? Yeah, I'd say it is, um, it's fairly common. I do think it's more common as a result of me being female. That's what I've kind of okay. seen. And I don't really want to like throw the sexist card in there, but I don't see men, like male physios, being challenged anywhere near as much as, mm. as female physios. Um, yeah, I did get into a bit of an argument at a club once. I won't, I won't mention what club it was, but it was an academy game. Um, and from our academy we had a couple of players that were 19 at the start of the season which meant that we could do a, a baseline test with them and a baseline test had been done with this player so we were at an away game he got smacked in the head I ran straight on to see him it was just sort of it went into contact um, I can't remember what his head made contact with but he was very much dazed so I was like right you're coming straight off 
Um, there wasn't a doctor there, so we weren't able to do a head injury assessment sort of mid-game, so it just means they've got to come off and then we can have a look at them afterwards and decide from there. Um, this was um, at the time as well. We had a big game coming up a couple of weeks' time after that. It was a, a cup final or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but a big game that the, the coaches really wanted him there for because he's a very, very good player. Yeah. Um, and from the second he came off, I hadn't even asked if the player was okay and said, oh, is he going to be able to play this game? Is he going to be able to play this game? He's had a baseline. He, he can return in six days. Um, and I said to him, you know, let me get back to you. I want to see how the player is first. So spoke with him and his history was he'd already had three concussions within the last year. So he'd had two of those before I'd started that season. So I wasn't kind of fully aware of them until I looked back at his notes after that day. Um, and he'd had one when I was there. Um, so yeah, two, the two had happened before I was there and they'd had that one at, at that time. So he'd had three that season. So I turned to the coaches straight away and said, no, he's not playing next week. And they said, well, you know, you haven't tested him throughout this week. And it doesn't matter. Like he's had three this season for me that or in the last year that's enough to say that he is not going to be fit for that game um i said if anything we should actually be sending him off for a proper clinic assessment now with someone that knows more about concussion than i do so i did for that have to get um the head of medical involved i had to get the doctor involved as well we didn't have an academy doctor at the time so yeah. i got like the first team doctor involved because um i did not feel like it was ethical for this player to be to be pushed to play a game I said we risk him you know, potentially he won't be ready anyway he might not recover from that concussion in time we don't know yet and two if we do push him to play it especially if he's not recovered you know that comes down on the physio's head if we've not like done our checks and we just send someone out so we can't do that and it's not good to let him go and play when he's already had three concussions he could end up with a really bad concussion which could potentially ruin his career and I've, I've seen that with two cases now of people that have had to retire before they've even turned 25 as a result of repeated concussions that have been poorly managed and I didn't want him to be like that when he's such a talented player. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose it must be quite lonely as a physio often because the coaches are on one side and then I, I imagine the players are often on the same side as the coaches because they want to play. Um, they don't want to be on the sidelines, obviously. The coaches want on the sidelines. Uh, the teammates don't want him on the sidelines. So I suppose sometimes you're the only one who's going, he can't play. Is that, is that the case? Mm, yes and no. I think that's... Obviously, and your colleagues. And yeah. Stuff. I think that used to be the case. Yeah. So I think previously, players would be like, no, nope, I want to carry on playing, let me play. I think particularly in rugby, there's like quite um, sort of a stereotype of like, oh, you know, they'll break their nose and they just carry on. To a certain extent, they do. But I think a lot of the time now, especially when it comes to head injuries, the players themselves are like, no, I'm not feeling right. And I did used to see people trying to cheat the concussion test and it was just obvious. But... Um, I don't see that so much now. They'll tell you, I'm actually feeling really dizzy. I'm actually feeling really sick. I don't, I don't feel well. Or if it's you know a different injury, like a knee or an ankle injury, they'll say mm, it's not quite right. And I think a lot of them want to be able to extend their career as much as they can. And they realise that actually by rushing back a week or two early, which is often what it is, it's not you know rushing back months early. It's rushing back yeah. small time periods early. They could do themselves more harm than good. So I do think there's been a, a player um, sort of perspective change on that. But yeah, it is quite yeah. isolating as a physio can be when it's, it feels like you versus everyone else. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think for years it was always like, I want to go after my body to protect the end of my career and to mm. hopefully play into my 30s. But the more and more you see now, you see sort of young players, like you said, who are retiring at the top of their game at like 22, 23. Yeah. I mean, there's, there must be examples of players who are retiring in their, in their teens still because these injuries are no longer 
progressive over career that you can have players retiring from repeated knee injuries or repeated back injuries but under like 20 which is, which is ridiculous so so yeah I think players are slowly waking up to the importance and maybe myself I'm waking up obviously on an amateur mm-hmm. level to that importance of yeah kind of not looking one game ahead not looking to that game on the weekend looking to that game in a couple of years or your life after sport etc okay so you're you're quite prominent on Instagram and a lot of your posts mention managing expectations. So, and this sounds very relevant to me. So, would you say as a physio, that's almost your most important job for patients and players to manage how long the injury will last? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's my most important job, but it's definitely up there because if someone comes to you and they, you know, sometimes you think you've done something small, um, and sometimes you might have done something small. So, someone, for example, might come to me with um, a knee injury that's not kind of that serious but whilst looking at it I realised for example their strength is massively reduced on that side in their quads and their hamstrings I can say to them well I can sort your injury out in two weeks but actually like your strength deficit is still going to be there if we don't address that now um, and that's going to have a long term impact on them potentially and then if you sort you know address that one problem you're then stopping them from getting further injuries on that same side or a different side so it's really important, I think, to communicate well with your patients and your, with your players so that they understand why they're out for so long, um, particularly when it is a long period of time, and what you're going to do in that time to make them come back better than they were before, mm. rather than sending someone back out to their sport or you know, back home um, in a worse position. Like My aim is always to get them better than what they were before, like running better or maybe they feel slightly fast to be able to jump higher, whatever it is. Um, and if you don't manage it from the start, if someone thinks that they're going to be back playing in two weeks' time and actually it's going to be three, four months' time and you've not told them, you're probably going to get a bit of anger from them. So I think yeah. it's important to just tell them, be honest about it and just, just find the right way to do that. Yeah, I think the idea of strength deficits is quite interesting. I think I'm hoping to do a podcast in a few weeks where we look at um, perhaps some of the flaws in the education system and the way, particularly in the UK, people are taught to do skills-based activities perhaps too young and then go into the gym. And I know myself, I know a boys' school, you go into the gym and straight away you're learning to like squat or you know bicep curl and do some certain exercises really early on but you don't learn how to build your whole physique. So yeah. you have players who may have strong quads but really weak hamstrings, which is going to lead to injuries, or perhaps like strong biceps but weak arms, and you can have all these sort of problems with strength. So how many people do you reckon come into your to your sessions who have like perfect, well no, not perfect, very good, equal, what's the term? Equal strength from both sides. Or both sides of the muscle group and stuff. Yeah, I think because I would see generally see people that are coming with an injury, I'm looking for a strength deficit a lot of the time. Yeah. So I'd say the majority of people that, that do come, I'm going to find a strength deficit within that um, area. If it's their shoulder, it might be that their external rotators are really, really weak or their internal rotators or something. Um, you know, So I think a lot of people I see do have a strength deficit. And whether sometimes, if an injury's gone on for a long time, has the strength deficit caused the injury or has the injury caused the strength deficit because you're in pain so then you don't want to move that that limb as much you change your muscle patterns and that kind of thing 
um, and that could potentially cause a, a strength deficit. But equally, someone might come in with an ACL rupture and their hamstrings, for example, were super weak beforehand. Um, and that's probably what, what caused it. So it all sort of led up to it. Um, so I think it's a bit of a mixture in, in that sense. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so you are, uh, and I wrote down here, strong woman, which is... Uh, <laughs> Such strange terms to use, but I don't just mean in terms of like life stature. I mean you're legit, you're legitimately a strong woman. You you lift a lot of weights, etc. Um, so how did you get involved in weightlifting? Yeah, that started when I was nineteen. So when I was at university, the first year of university, I think I had a bit of a tough time in halls. I lived with some people that were not very nice. I also met my best friend in halls. Um, as well so you know, it, was, it was a bit of a mixed bag but we ended up moving out in the end because it was so bad um, and it was bad because we basically just weren't getting any sleep we had a few people in our halls that didn't um, do courses that required them to go in all the time they could do things online like me and my best friend Laura we had very much like nine to five full-on courses yeah. um, and I actually thought like I felt like I was going crazy I was getting such a little amount of sleep I'm talking like two hours a night maybe because they'd be up all night screaming and shouting um, and as a result of that, I then definitely started eating more because during the day, like, oh, how do I keep myself awake? You know, oh, I'll just have a bit of chocolate, I'll just have this, I'll have that. So you end up eating. Um, and I sort of noticed when in my first year, it's when I went to see my grandparents, my granddad's a little bit bold and he turned to me and was like, oh, well, you've put on quite a bit of weight, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, mum. Classic, <laughs> so, fresher. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I weighed myself in my grandparents' bathroom because I had put on a fair bit of weight that year, most of which I don't think was muscle. And I was playing netball, but I hadn't really done um, any strength training. So I was like, right, I need to shift some of this weight, like, you know, kick myself up the bum. So um, lost sort of five kilos quite quickly just from, I think I was pretty much just running in the gym every day. And then I really wanted to do a personal training course. My, as part of my degree, they were offering it at a much lower price. Okay. And um, we just had to do a week of practical stuff um, with an exam at the end and then we had two assessment days of, uh, sorry, two assessment exams of written um, stuff but they wouldn't teach us the written content they said you should know that already from university so that's why it was so much cheap, cheaper because they didn't have to okay, teach yeah. us that, you just have to pass the exam. Um, so that was easy enough so I was like right I'm going to go do that tonight more because I wanted to feel confident lifting in the gym myself. I knew that you could do things wrong but not that I knew what was right and what was wrong. Um, so I was like, right, let's let's do that. So I did my course, and that's what made me then feel like, okay, I, I kind of know enough now um, to be able to lift myself. And if anyone listening has done a personal training course, you'll probably know that it doesn't actually like qualify you to do all that much in the sense that it's not that um, sort of not as deep knowledge wise as it needs to be in order for you to be a very good PT. And as with a lot of subjects, you need to like read around and learn loads more. So that's why I then started doing just reading loads more and speaking to. A lot of my friends, one of my best friends now who I met at Hertfordshire called Charlie, he's a strength conditioning coach at Hertfordshire and a lot of my sort of weight training influence has come from him because he'd do sessions with me when I was in my, especially in my final year at uni, um, we'd do sessions together and he like knew about technique, he knew about sort of how to brace yourself and that kind of thing and even now like, he sent me a video yesterday on how to bench, he was like you definitely need to change your bench press technique slightly just because I think you'll be able to lift a little bit more if we make these small tweaks and that kind of thing so um, I think there's been a couple of people that have definitely been quite influential and also working in rugby clubs that like you're walking around with like big strong men all day and I was like oh I want to be big and strong <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it was, I was actually watching as um, Elliot Daly was doing 
weighted pull-ups. I was like, oh my goodness, like, how can you do that? Like, I can't even do a pull-up. <laughs> so it was things like that. that I was like, I want to be able to, to do that. And I wanted to be able to, not I was going to be able to match these big, strong rugby guys, but I wanted to in myself feel strong. Um, and the other reason as well, that I'd been sort of followed home and people had tried to attack me a couple of times, like coming back from nightclubs in Croydon and then coming back to my like, university houses. And I just remember thinking like, all I can really do is like hope for a good kick in the balls and then run. So I was like, I want to have more strings to my bow than that. So maybe I need to get a bit stronger. Um, so that was one of the reasons too, which probably shouldn't be a like a driving force behind why you train and why you exercise. But I think as a female who's grown up in Croydon, you need to have some self-defense in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I actually trained in the same gym as Elliot Daly for a while. Um, obviously he's a couple of years, maybe two or three years older than me. And I remember like him being like, oh, can you uh, spot me on this weight? And I'm like, yes, sir, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was just making his debut for Boston at the time. And although he said I wasn't that much younger, I felt like his little, uh, little friend. I actually played a netball with him as well once. Um, and one <laughs> of my big, big claim to frame was he was, I think he would have been like maybe 21. Um, he was the big hot thing in English rugby. And he ran at me and I just decked him. And then he ran straight into me, fell on his ass. And there was about two seconds of me thinking, oh, I'm the king. I've absolutely decked a professional rugby player. And then for about two minutes of me thinking, oh, God, I might have ruined his chance to play for England. <laughs> his career. Like, what will, uh, <laughs> what will Jones say when he finds out me, you're injured, etc. Um, okay, uh, yeah, so what then is the, the benefits to an average athlete, so not a strength, so I mean, a lot of people have this common misconception that strength training makes you big and bulky or it gets you ripped and it's all about being a bodybuilder, but if you look at athletes from all different sports, so down in Bath we had the elite uh, performance centre where like, you had like snowboarders and skiers and uh, tennis players and hockey players, all sorts, training in a special gym and they all spent hours and hours a day doing weights. Um, obviously some, some of it's more about mobility work, some of it's more about genuine strength. So what is the benefits to general athletes from strength training? So if you're doing a lot of strength training, you're going to be able to increase your power, increase your um, like velocity as well, because if you're increasing your weight by being a little bit stronger, that will have an impact. And I think the main things you'll notice functionally wise are going to be your sprints are probably going to be faster, your jumps are going to be higher and your ability to compete against other people um, is going to be better. And particularly, I think, for example, take a sport like netball. Um, I'd say I probably train in the gym more than a lot of netballers at my level and definitely below. Um, and what I notice is when I go into sort of a contact with someone, I, I'm a lot more solid. I'm not going anywhere. Um, so the, the more you create sort of a big, um, sort of more strength and more kind of core stability, that's going to have a big impact as well on your sporting performance. But also well, that core, that core stability is key, yeah. and, that, and that's developed, I suppose, from those Olympic lifts and the all any sort of whole body lift or hold. Yeah, to lead about that core strength, which is massive all sports. So just take hockey for example. If you're going to swing a stick, the stronger your core, the more ability you're going to have yeah. to hit the ball harder and consistently. And, golf, rugby, any example. Exactly. It must have a massive impact. It does. And I think the other thing as well that people probably don't realise is injury prevention is it's huge. Um if you were to you know we want to prevent the injuries that we can prevent and we can't prevent everything. For example in rugby if, if someone runs at you and, and they absolutely smash you and you break your leg, well probably couldn't have prevented that. It's probably gonna happen. But other things like ACL injuries 
like ruptures that happen with no one else around, they're the kind of things we should be preventing. We should be preventing like the soft tissue injuries from sprinting, like doing a sprint for like, you know a try line or something like that. They, you should your hamstrings should not be pinging them, your calf should not be pinging them. We should be able to um, do enough prehab in the gym to be able to stop that from happening. Yeah. So I think that's a, an important aspect to it. Okay, so this is this is about um, as athletes, what can strength training do? What can strength training do for, to say like my mum or, just, or uh, any man or woman who doesn't do sport um what are the, what are the general health benefits from taking part in strength training yeah so i think if you're doing a lot of weight training it will affect actually your cardiovascular health as well so it's going to help your heart um and that's what a lot of people are, are going to want it's going to have a big impact on your bone mineral density so typically we lay down our bone mineral density before we're 21 and that's the majority of what we're kind of going to lay down um, but by doing strength training, particularly with women who are like of menopausal age, it can help um, improve their bone mineral density even after having a drop, which we see in the menopause. So if you've improved your bone mineral density, you're less likely to um, have bone breaks, bone fractures. The thing that strength training helps with, not only does it help improve your balance, therefore you're less likely to have a fall and a lot of falls and lead to fractures. Um, it also it sort of improves your strength too, like hence strength training. Um, so that's going to help you as you get older. There's also a lot of research to show that actually the size of your quads is very much linked to mortality rate. So the stronger quads you have, not the less likely you are to, to die, but generally it's an indicator that you must have more muscle, therefore you're probably fitter, you're li- living a healthier mm-hmm. lifestyle, um, and more likely to, to live longer and have sort of less comorbidities. But it's also from a mental health perspective, as you get older, generally you can put on weight a bit more easily, is, is going to help stop that from happening. And everyone says, oh, yeah, muscle weighs more than fat. It doesn't weigh more than fat. Muscle is just more dense than fat. So in the same area, you're going to get more muscle than you're going to kind of get fat in. Yeah. Um, and that's going to have a, a big impact for people, I think particularly as you do get older as well. Um, and pain. So we so we get pain from not really doing anything. Our bodies are made to move. Like we come from cavemen. We're hunter-gatherers and that kind of thing. We should be moving our bodies so if we're not moving them a, a lot then we can eventually end up with pain as a result of that i know we often get pain from injuries from moving as well but actually and the benefits sort of outweigh the risk of getting injured whilst you're exercising um so that's really important and as we get older you can develop osteoarthritis so from about the age of 35 onwards we see osteoarthritic changes within our joints so if you were to scan someone who was 40, for example, do an MRI or an x-ray on them, you probably would find a bit of arthritis in their knees or in their hips. The difference between the 40-year-old that has pain in their knees and the one that doesn't, a lot of the time will be that one of them is exercising, one of them's got strong quadriceps, strong hamstrings, and your muscles help support your joints. The stronger they are, generally, the less you kind of notice those changes. Um, a lot of the time, even people that think they need knee replacements, for example, just strengthen them up and a lot of them feel so much better than they're kind of questioning whether they need it um and so yeah from that perspective it, it's quite interesting and there's definitely i think just from speaking to my parents this idea that oh you shouldn't be lifting weights that's not good for you i'm getting older i shouldn't be lifting things that are heavy and it's it's the complete opposite like you should be my mum's amazing she's in her 50s and she goes to the gym every morning when they're open and lifts weights and she's super strong and then tries to arm wrestle my stepdad on the kitchen table um yeah (laughs) my (laughs) mum yeah (laughs) and then my 
does he's super active he plays a lot of squash but he's always like well I can't lift weights because you know my shoulders are bad and I can't lift weights because of this I'm like that's why you should lift weights <laughs> exactly. so I think it's important for those reasons yeah and also you mentioned the mental side of it as well but there's something really satisfying about a sport where you see that progressive um, sort of overload and development so like let's just say hockey or netball for example the what you achieve in that sport on a week to week basis is dependent on so many factors so you've got you know how well the team plays whether the ball goes in the net or it bounces out or it hits the rim or you're not having a good day etc whereas with weightlifting you get that extra five kilos on the bar or you do an extra rep and you get a real euphoria that comes no matter how old you are whether that be you're benching 10 kilograms or you're benching 200 kilograms that progressive overload is really satisfying yeah and I reckon like any middle-aged person or young person or old person would really enjoy that so if you haven't done strength training before I'm sure you'd really encourage people to get involved in yeah definitely I really would if you you need direction there's so many online resources now with YouTube and social media that kind of thing but you do need to just make sure you're following the right people because there's also a lot of people that don't know what they're doing <laughs> sadly Hacking about yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen them okay no, so as a so as a physio but also as a amateur sportswoman who does netball and um, weightlifting etc from your experience how many people do you think take the off-field um, sort of like generic term off-field side of sports seriously so talk about like diet stretching um off-field training prehab maybe even sports psychology so the sportsman as a whole or sportswoman how many people do you think take all that seriously i'd estimate probably less than five percent of people i know take the non-sport specific stuff seriously yeah i wouldn't be surprised if you're probably not far off um i think the closer you get to a professional level if you're playing very high level sort of like nat one rugby or um sort of premiership level kind of netball then i think you're more likely to be following all of those extra things and at that level like being able to make sure that your sleep is really good and your diet's good and the things you're doing in the gym is, is working for you is going to have a huge impact on you on the field or on the court or whatever it is um but i think a lot of the time people's goals don't really marry up and i think the gym is a perfect example of that in some ways that people will go to the gym and they'll be like oh I'm gonna have a really heavy leg session or really like doing loads of bench and that kind of thing and they later on like go out to their football game and actually if they were to marry it all together and think okay in football I want to be a little bit faster so I'm gonna do more um like Olympic lifting in the gym or something like that and to marry them up better then they'd probably see big progress and same thing with like managing their recovery like sleep is a huge thing that I think a lot of us don't get enough of at all um, and if people were to even just start trying to manage that I think they'd notice a big difference to their sporting performance so I do think it's a very small amount of people that kind of look at everything I think what is better now at university level sport is that they do have sports psychologists there and they do sort of their video analysis they do talk to them about food and sometimes they get uh, an allowance of food and that kind of thing um, and the importance of sleep and recovery that's really emphasised now at university level sport uh, in some places so I think that might then carry on past university for a lot of those people where they picked up a lot of that knowledge that they wouldn't have had before so I do wonder if we'll see that changing but I don't think sort of your average person that plays Sunday league football um, 
is making sure their diet's okay and not sort of downing 10 points the night before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, um, I've kind of made a transition in recent years away from just working hard, but obviously working smart as well. And I wouldn't say I work any harder now than I used to, even though I'm in better shape than I used to be. I just think, say, say two years ago, I was doing 10 hours of gym a week. Um, maybe I'm still doing 10 hours, maybe doing less hours, but I'm doing smarter stuff. So I've got sort of a goal specific. So am I trying to get stronger for sport? Am I trying to get lighter for sport? Do I want to get more powerful? Whatever your goal is and working towards that, as opposed to being what a lot of people do, which is just go to the gym and lift some stuff and have no real target. So I think I found having those targets and being specific in what I'm doing is really beneficial. And I'm sure that's probably what you advise yeah. A lot of do, <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you if you want to be better at your sport, then just practicing your sport isn't quite enough now, I don't think. Yeah. There's so many more things that you can do. Okay, so from all these episodes, I've tried to gain something personally. Obviously, this is a unique one because this is a bit like a consultation, which <laughs> we have on a regular basis with me. Um, but what advice would you give me or people like me uh, in terms of their health from, a, from your point of view? So I think like you're fairly desk based. So I think if you're desk based and you're at home, then I would try and do something every day that means you move. And that doesn't have to mean that you're doing like a half an hour hit class and you absolutely hate it. Like you can just go for a 20 minute walk. You can just walk up and down the stairs a few times and have regular breaks. You can um, do some stretching on the floor. Anything like that is not just going to be good for your physical health. It's going to be good for your mental health as well. So I think that is something that's really important. But I think from sort of like a um, like you're a hockey player and that kind of thing, that kind of perspective is the more you can marry up your goals, the better you're going to find it. And the more you can marry up your gym with your hockey, then not only are you going to be better at your sport, but you're probably not going to be as injured and end up in my office as much. So that will benefit you too. Um, and same thing with sort of eating and sleep as well. I'm not one for like food as fuel and that you know you should be making sure you have this much protein and this much this it's just like making sure you're hitting a calorie target making sure you're hitting a protein target um sort of most days but also having those relaxed days at the weekend as well because again that's good for your mental health to be able to just chill out a bit but it'll be really good for your physical health to meet your kind of calorie and, and protein goals so that's kind of my advice for you yeah that's quite nice actually normally um your advice is telling me off for. <laughs> pushing it too much or rushing back too quickly from an injury but okay I'll take that um so I suppose you've already mentioned that actually but what advice can you give people who are who've had their whole lives turned around and they're now working from home all the time they aren't getting out as much um I'm sure you've seen a real increase in sort of slightly stranger injuries injuries caused by maybe lying in bed with a laptop and stuff like that what advice can you give people who have found their whole working life has changed yeah, there is a, a lot more of that that I have seen at home and there is, um, there's no perfect way to set up your desk really, like ideally we sort of want our um, thighs parallel to the floor and our forearms parallel to the floor and our face a certain a distance apart from our monitor, but you're not always going to be able to do that, but actually moving positions regularly will help, so if you do like to sit in bed on your laptop, I do it from time to time, I'll wake up and grab my laptop and just start working from my bed before I've even woken up properly. Um, but don't do it all day. So you can work from your bed for a couple of hours. You could go and work from your desk for a couple of hours. You could go work on the sofa for a couple of hours. But actually, it's 
changing position there's not loads of research for posture to suggest that actually like bad posture causes pain so um it's more sort of like not moving does so the more you can kind of move around at home i think would be good and just trying to create some kind of routine in the madness might help you and, and look at it from a positive way like now you're not having to commute so you're not having to get in the car and i'm to a you know, go um, get the train or something. So use that time to do something else that's going to benefit you positively. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's a sort of advice there for people at home. Okay. So just to finish then, uh, any other business? Anything you want to talk about from the world of sport, the world of fitness, or your professional experience? Uh, no, I think we've sort of like covered most things. My sports injury clinic is based in Purley, sort of on the Purley Way, and luckily I'm still able to work as normal, do face to face appointments, and we've got an amazing gym here that I'm still able to use even in um, lockdown with my patients. So that's really handy, and it's a really good place to be able to do rehab with people as well. Um, so, yeah. So, where can people find out more about your business? your website social media stuff. yeah got a website which is um on your uk and i've got social media which is at on your game underscore for instagram and facebook is at on your game one so if you're looking for me hopefully if you search on your game on a social media platform i'd hope i come up <laughs> have a little look i do try and put out like informative things on, on my instagram so take a look yeah, I can testify to that actually. It's a continuous stream of uh, beneficial posts. Um, and I think somewhat uniquely, they're normally a bit entertaining as well. You have, uh, I've, I've seen it already today, I've seen you hit yourself in the face with a, with a resistance band <laughs> when you fell over while trying to demonstrate some exercises. So there's that good mix of entertaining stuff as well as really interesting insight into injuries and and I'd really recommend anyone coming down and getting an appointment. So you're based in South London, in Purley. Um, and I was talk- I'll talk about this more later on, but I think you offer a really good holistic approach to the patient. I think I've worked with videos before where you get your like half hour, hour session, and then that's it. Whereas for you, you always check up on the patients, well, check up on me to make sure, you know, how am I doing a week after, how am I doing two weeks after, how did this feel? How did that feel? So it's not like and you're not paying for that one hour or half an hour. You're paying for the whole recovery experience, which I think is really well, from my experience, quite unique amongst physios. Yeah. So I really would recommend you checking out on your game. Um, so all that leads me to do is say thank you for joining me, and I hope everyone's benefited. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a fascinating conversation with Joni. She has so much experience across sport as a whole that she can offer some really interesting insights. I thought the subject of head injuries in American football versus rugby was really interesting. It's very rare you find someone who has such extensive inside knowledge of a sports programme, but is no longer tied down by the bureaucracy and rules that are in place by that team, and therefore can offer some really interesting but impartial views without having to go for that media-friendly spin. Many long-term issues in sport are related now to direct repeated injuries and impacts. There's been a few recent inquests into dementia in sport, particularly following high-profile cases such as Nobby Styles and football, 
and Dr. Bennett Amalu in America highlighted chronic traumatic encephalopathy in NFL players such as Mike Webster of Pittsburgh. It is now, therefore, perhaps more important than ever that healthcare professionals, coaches and players take a collective responsibility for player welfare. And I'm hoping that's something we can discuss a lot more in future episodes. I'd like to once again highlight the great work done by On Your Game. So Joni is not only a top physio, but she's also my physio. And I chose her for a very good reason. I feel she takes this really good holistic approach when treating athletes. It's not about that half hour, one hour session. It's about her treating you and all aspects of you until you are, until you're fully repaired. Um, when I was recently recovering from my knee ligament injury, not only was she with me every step of the way, but when it came to me being recovered and playing again, I came off the pitch after my first game back and immediately had a text message from Joni asking how the game went, how I felt, how my knee's feeling now. And, you know, I'd paid for that session weeks before, but she continued to take an active interest. And I think that's what really separates her from some of her other counterparts. She really appreciates what the as- every aspect of what the patient needs and tries to give it to them. And so that brings us to the end of episode number three. Um, I'd implore you to all go and check out on social media at Joni Diana. So that's J-O-A-N-I-E Diana. Um, and at on your game underscore for more information about both Joni and her company. So I'd also like to reveal I've got some really exciting guests lined up for future weeks. I'm not going to reveal names right now because I'm waiting to confirm dates and how the latest government guidelines are going to affect this. However, in the coming weeks, I'm hoping to speak to a, a chef who is uh, who works alongside the FA, the RFU and GB Olympic teams um, to prepare the highest quality, highest nutrition food for both training and recovery. I'm also hoping to speak to a teacher who is going to offer some really interesting views on perhaps some of the positive and negatives about how we are preparing young athletes and whether maybe we can learn from certain other countries. And then I'm also hoping to speak to someone who's a hopeful Olympian for 2021, and interesting to see how his journey's been affected by injuries, and I think also the psychological point of view of knowing your next injury could end your Olympic dream and how that affects you. But that's all to come. In the meantime, Please keep up to date where we think hips and dips on the social media. So I'm at Mansfield Curtis. Uh, there's also the podcast page, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips. We're not only available now on Spotify, but also Apple Podcasts, as well as Google Podcasts and most podcast platforms now. So all that leaves for me to say is thank you for joining me and please stay safe.